You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. I'm not a professional psychic, but I can do what's called a cold reading. Anyone with a knack for gauging psychological and emotional states can do it. But what's the harm in a cold reading or or even seeing a self-described psychic? Well, for one, are you ready to part with a hard-earned stash of cash? Reading Minds is a multi-billion dollar business. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. And in this episode of our regular look at critical thinking, when most of us think of psychics, we picture palmists, our tarot card readers, a bit of fun at small expense, and, and perhaps the only cost is to your wallet. But widespread belief in psychic phenomena in the U.S. is an invitation to scams and hucksterism, and some pseudoscience businesses extract a more substantial cost. There are naturopaths out there who think that they can heal serious diseases like autoimmune illnesses, heart disease, and cancer. Find out what disturbing event prompted her to quit the field, how we might avoid the worst consequences of belief in pseudoscience, and why ignorance of science is not bliss. It's Skeptic Check, betting on pseudoscience. Do you know what I'm thinking? Or whether my fortunes will rise or fall in the coming year? Well, psychics claim they can see the future, and one way they can appear to do this is with a technique called a cold reading. They get you to divulge some small personal details about yourself unwittingly, which, when played back to you, seems impossible to know. I mean, how could anyone know that unless they were a psychic? So how how are you doing today, Seth? Uh, You know, pretty good, I guess, yeah. You have some worries. You're worried about some things. Well, yeah, I am, actually. I... Is it is it about your health, or is it perhaps no. finances? Not finances. Uh, health? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's health. Is it your job? Well, You're feeling stress, maybe. Yeah, there's, a, yeah, there's always a little bit of stress, maybe a little You're more now. You're feeling stress at work. Um, I'm feeling that. And are you thinking about someone whose name starts with an M? Well, I, actually, I was. Okay, okay. And, and, and that person was? My mom. It's your mom. Okay, so you're thinking about your mom because you love her and perhaps you miss her? I do miss her, yeah. You every do day. I miss her. I'm really getting a strong sense of, of what's going on with you. Well, uh, that's pretty impressive, actually. That is what's called a cold reading. My goodness. I'm going to turn, turn up the thermostat in here. And, and had, you not said, had you not said mom? With an M, I would have said, are you thinking of somebody perhaps with a W? I mean, I'll just turn that letter upside down. Perhaps you're thinking of someone with a W. All right. Well, I mean, obviously, it may be comforting to have someone across a rug-top table tell you your life is going to improve. Now, I know you're about to say, but, but I'd like to add my own caveat before you do, if you don't mind. Um, I know we're joking around about this, but having someone sit and listen attentively while you describe uncertainty in your life and what some of your deepest fears are um, can be more than just comforting, and it can really be a lifeline. And... A friend of our family is facing a serious health crisis right now, and the outcome is uncertain, which worries all of us. And she has confessed that since her diagnosis, she's been going to see a medium. Yeah, she's seeing the medium more than once. I mean, she repeatedly Yeah, there. she's gone a number of times. And I know that a medium is different from a psychic, but, but anyway, this medium says she's trained in interdimensional communication. And 
Our friend says that what this medium has done is offered her hope by reassuring her that she has benevolent caretakers in this life and that she'll have them in the next one. And as a result, she feels less fearful about what's going to happen. It's a very scary time. So, you know, if this self-described medium can provide some reassurance by suggesting that she can tap into some information elsewhere in the universe um, that is unavailable to the rest of us, but it helps our friend face what she's going through, I don't know that I see the harm in it. In fact, it might be a good idea. Well, I suppose I can understand that. But believing that some people have supernatural powers, mediums who talk to the dead or psychics who can see into the future, I mean, it's not always harmless, at least to your wallet. Predicting the future is big business. Hi, I'm Rob Palmer. I'm a member of the Guerrilla Skeptics on Wikipedia editing team, and that led me to become a uh, columnist for the Skeptical Inquirer online magazine. Robert Palmer doesn't believe in psychic powers, but he reports that many people do. There was a Pew poll in 2018 that broke up all sorts of paranormal and woo beliefs based upon religiosity, and uh, the average was 41% believe in psychics and mediums. 10% even of atheists do, so that was shocking to me. And if you're not a member of a mainstream religion, so you consider yourself spiritual, the situation in this regard is actually even worse because it's up in the 60s. He was reporting on his research at an annual skeptics conference called PsyCon that Seth recently attended in Las Vegas. Rob, when people think of psychics, you know, they think of, I don't know, tarot card readers or people who look at your palm for $10 and tell you something about your future. But it's a much bigger industry than that. Oh, yeah. By self-reporting of the industry, which, of course, is only going to count, you know, money that has to be reported to the agency, which is credit cards, it's over $2 billion. $2 billion. Okay, so these are people who are, I don't know, predicting the future or telling uh, people something about their yeah. family. What, All I mean, of the above. Yeah, that's anyone who is a member of the agency, something like American Institute of Psychics. And obviously not everyone probably joins that organization. But actually, it's American Institute of, I think it's Certified Psychics, which kind of says, oh, we're certified. We have to be real. But it would be anyone who does that kind of thing. Clairvoyant mediums, people who are just tarot card readers, people who read horoscopes, all of that. Well, that doesn't sound terribly, uh, I don't know, malignant in any way. I mean, what, what's the harm? I mean, may, maybe you don't believe it, maybe you do believe it, but, you know, frankly, uh, who is hurt by that? Right. So what I found out is that even by self-reporting of that industry, $200 million are quote-unquote scammed, and that's not counting, like, you know, you're paying $100 for reading. That's people who get people into huge debt by convincing them that they have an evil curse on them, they're going to die and their family might be injured unless they keep paying the psychic for help. And the amount of money that is really taken from people must be astronomical if the agency itself says it's $200 million. So give me an example of the kind of scam in which big money might be involved. I mean, obviously, that's more than just a palm reading unless you also read the soles of your feet or something. Right. So I can give you one example. Uh, this one really is amazing. So the psychic is named Priscilla Del Moro, and she convinced her male client who had come to her for help because he was in love with a woman named Michelle on Facebook, and apparently, you know, he wasn't getting the recognition he wanted from the woman. So Damaro said that they were twin flames kept apart by negativity. And I'll bet she uses that line on a lot of her clients. But, you know, whatever she told him, it was enough to convince him to keep paying her huge amounts of money to try to get Michelle to recognize him as more than just a Facebook follower. Well, eventually Michelle died. And the client went back to Priscilla, and Priscilla said, oh, no, that's not the end of it. I can reincarnate her into another person's body for you. And that wasn't enough to send the client running. He kept paying her. I think it was for another year. And that total was $700,000 from one individual. My God. Okay, so uh, these people tend to prey then on folks that are in vulnerable situations, people who may not understand, you know, the fact that this is a pseudoscience. I mean, what, well, what's going on here from the standpoint of why would anybody, you know, sign up for 700000 I mean, eventually $700,000 to pursue a romance with a dead woman? Right. Well, of course, it depends on how much money you have. I was personally contacted by someone who lost $42,000 compared to 700000 It's not a lot, but that was her life savings. There are people who are bankrupted, lose their houses because of this sort of thing. And the interesting thing is it's, yes, largely over the, the psychic 
psychic helping them to remove a curse or with their love life that's not going well or something like that. But the scary thing is, it's not just a stupid person. The private eye, who I got a lot of this information from when I wrote an article for Skeptical Inquirer, where I interviewed him, his name is Bob Nygaard, you could look that up. He says that the people who fall for this are doctors, they're lawyers, they're CEOs of corporations, they're professors. One professor told him that he lost $200,000, but he didn't want Nygaard to pursue it. He just wanted Nygaard to know the name of the person so that they could watch the psychic, so she didn't do this to anyone else. But he couldn't report this because the $200,000 was not worth as much as his reputation at the university. What's fundamentally going on here? I mean, these people are uh, particularly credulous. What's going on? What is the psychology here? They're experts at psychological manipulation. That's the quote from the detective. And he says, without ever having gotten a degree, they're experts at psychological manipulation. They know how to push the right buttons. And from personal experience, I have friends and coworkers who will argue with me strenuously from one experience they had that, oh, no, I'm wrong. Okay, maybe some of them are fake, but the person they went to is real. And one of them was actually had a reading from the famous John Edward. He told her the name of her ex-husband, and quote-unquote, there is no way he could have known that. Well, maybe it was a cold reading thing where he said, is your husband's ex-husband's name Brad or Bill or Bob? Or she only, oh, yes, he said Brad. And she swears he only said one name. But, of course, we know uh, memory is fragile, and that's likely not what happened. Well, uh, you know, when we think of scams, I mean, if you were selling snake oil, and what I learned at this conference is that there actually was snake yes, oil made from snakes. That's something I didn't know. I guess squeaky snakes probably need snake oil. Uh, but if you're, if you're doing that, you know, we have the FDA. So there's some protection. If you sell something claiming that it'll cure cancer or whatever, you know, that violates the law. But if somebody comes in and says, I'm going to put you in touch with your lost dead relative, uh, is there any real recourse, particularly given the fact that people are reluctant to, to uh, report this stuff? So New York State has a law that's been on the books since I think it was the mid-60s, which says that uh, doing any of this kind of thing is punishable by a fine and a prison sentence of 90 days. Not a lot, but if, hey, if you keep getting somebody for that, they would probably stop. But the reality of the situation is Manhattan is overflowing with psychic shops. In poor neighborhoods, rich neighborhoods, it doesn't make a difference. So law enforcement doesn't take this seriously. That's a big problem. So uh, one thing Bob Nagar told me was you could be not too intelligent and leave your keys in a car running going into a store to get a quick coffee and teenagers drive off with your car. He doesn't think there's any police precinct which would tell you, oh, it's your own fault. You gave him your car. But that's what they do if they say you gave the money to the psychic without a gun to your head, so it's not a crime. Well, finally, Rob, what can one do? I mean, obviously, you're interested in, you know, bringing these people to account, uh, stopping this, you know, this scam, which is what it is. What can anybody do? What, what, What should society do? Okay, as individuals, I think the best we can do, if we're not in law enforcement and that sort of a thing, is to basically protest the venues that are giving these people access to people to scam. And even if an individual psychic who's you know going into a public theater or something, paying for the spot, is not a person who's going to scam you out of more than a $10 reading, it's going to promote the belief that these kinds of people are real. And then the people in that audience are more likely to go to somebody who might do that. I personally did this, actually. There was a local theater who uh, we, we go to in our area, which has uh, plays we like. And before the play last month, the theater manager came out and told us what upcoming events were. And they were going to have a psychic medium. And she was proud to announce that. So I actually did write a letter. And they said, well, well, thank you for your opinion. It had a lot of links in it to my paper on this subject and also videos on how psychic mediums do cold reading and hot reading. And they said, well, we'll take it under consideration the next time. And I think that's the best I could have hoped for. Rob Palmer, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Robert Palmer is a member of the Guerrilla Skeptics on Wikipedia editing team and a columnist for Skeptical Inquirer. Well, let's put what Rob Palmer said into the big picture. My name is Lee McIntyre, and I'm a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University, and I also teach ethics at Harvard Extension School. 
He says that belief in pseudoscience is a result of the widespread mistrust that many Americans have about science. Dr. McIntyre has authored many books, including Post-Truth, and the most recent, The Scientific Attitude, Defending Science from Denial, Fraud, and Pseudoscience, where he says that science denial can cause different levels of harm. So it depends on the area of science denial. Uh, if you're talking about flat earthers, you might think, well, you know, they don't really hurt anybody. That's not really any trouble. But vaccine denial, I think, does end up hurting people. We've got about 800 cases of measles over uh, 20-some states in the U.S. right now. And uh, climate change, that's the one that's really got me uh, worried. Uh, just on the news the other day, uh, President Trump was explaining to Prince Charles that he thought that climate change could go either way and was really sort of the denier in chief about climate change and that has policy consequences and it normalizes science denial. Well, it certainly sounds like a crisis. We hear about how one third of the public more or less disbelieves in Darwinian evolution. Uh, a lot of folks, as you note, think climate change is some sort of hoax. Others believe that vaccines are actually dangerous yeah. for their kids. It sounds like an extension of the phenomenon of fake news to science. I think you hit that exactly right. In fact, the current post-truth problem going on in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere about fake news came from science denial. Uh, if you read Naomi Oreska's book, Merchants of Doubt, you understand that this really all started in the modern era with pushing back against the idea that there was a link between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. And that became the blueprint for climate change denial. And I think that what happens is if people think that, well, you can push back against those scientific topics, why not push back against anything? Uh, why not push back against the idea that the uh, crime rate is uh, rising rather than falling or uh, what's going to be the result of uh, a tariff? I mean, why not deny any facts in general or what counts anymore if you can attack science? Well, do you think that this is because of the fact that in a sense, science can never prove something. Uh, you know, it, it, there's always the chance that that next experiment will show that the apple falls upward, for example. And yet Newton's theory is, you know, fairly well established, I would say. Are they seizing on that, or is it just a, sort of a relativistic moral standard here that, well, you know, nothing is absolute? I, I think it's the former. I think it's this idea that... Uh, uh, a lot of people have that science is about proof and certainty. You'll often hear science deniers say uh, that evolution is just a theory or that climate change isn't settled science. They're looking for 100 percent. They've got an impossibly high standard that has to be met. And they'll call themselves skeptics, but that's not really skepticism. That's more kind of cafeteria skepticism. Because one thing that I've noticed is that science deniers, a lot of them tend to be conspiracy theorists. Conspiracy theorists have a double standard for evidence. Really, anything that they don't want to believe, no evidence is going to change their mind. But if it's something that they do want to believe, they're completely gullible about it. More with Lee McIntyre about how to fight science denial and what ultimately helps to change minds. And then later in the show, what prompted a naturopath to leave her field. By the way, if you have thoughts about this episode or others that you'd like to share, you can easily connect with us on social media. We're on Twitter at BiPiSci. It's Skeptic Check, betting on pseudoscience on Big Picture Science. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Among the public, science is often thought of as being defined by its 
tools. You know, test tubes filled with colored liquids, giant telescopes perched on mountains, or anyone looking through a microscope. But that's not what really distinguishes science and makes it special, says philosopher Lee McIntyre. What makes it special is the attitude that scientists have towards evidence, but we seem to be holding that in low regard in this post-truth world. His book on the subject, The Scientific Attitude, Defending Science from Denial, Fraud, and Pseudoscience. Now, we're talking about some of the reasons why people resist the facts of science and the worldwide susceptibility to pseudoscience. It suggests that what appears to be an irrational attitude may actually be hard-baked into our psyches, if not our psychics. So how do we change minds? Well, this may be of relatively small consequence if you're talking about somebody who believes in the efficacy of a rabbit's foot or avoiding black cats. But if you're talking vaccines or climate change, it's a much bigger deal. So what's the right strategy to encourage a trust in science? If you can't distinguish science from non-science, then how do you fight back against science denial? And I got to thinking about what was really distinctive about science, and what I think it is, is the values of science. It's the attitude that scientists have toward evidence. What I mean by the scientific attitude is, number one, scientists care about evidence. Number two, scientists are willing to use evidence to change their beliefs. Uh, it's that second part that's really important, because if you embrace the scientific attitude, it means that you understand that even though you want to believe in something, maybe, if the evidence rules it out, you've got to change your beliefs. And that is a matter of values, as a kind of a normative ideal, is, I think, what separates science. The fact that it's data-driven, the fact that it's driven by observation, by doing experiments that, uh, that, that could indeed completely invalidate your, your ideas. Yeah, it, it, the invalidation part's the important part. Anybody can go out and gather evidence to confirm what they want to believe. The confirmation bias is, is strong. It can be strong even for scientists, I suppose. But the wonderful thing about science is that there are these built-in values of community standards and practices of sharing data and peer review and replication, which means that if somebody puts forth a hypothesis, it's going to be tested. And if it's wrong, uh, sooner or later, people will figure that out. It doesn't always happen overnight, but the thing that I love about science is that it's got this built-in respect for the idea that evidence matters and they're reasoning about evidence in a good way. But very often the people that are either uh, denying science or proposing what you might call pseudoscience will point to uh, researchers who you know, are on their side yeah. I mean, in the case of climate denial, there are some scientists who say, no, the climate isn't changing. And they'll say, see, even scientists uh, agree with us. Yeah, that's the problem. Everybody thinks they're the next Galileo. They'll point to their own experts. And, and I get these letters, by the way. Uh, I get these letters from anti-vaxxers and from climate change deniers saying, you know, no, no, you've, you've got it wrong. The scientific consensus has screwed this up. And if you just look at this website and you look at these experts, you'll really, you know, understand. You know, I understand that there are some mainstream scientists at prestigious universities who have got alternative theories about climate change. By the way, this is still <laughs> this is still happening with evolution. We don't have 100% scientific consensus on evolution by natural selection. Scientists are a contentious bunch. You're never going to get them all to agree. Uh, there is a point at which the field moves on, and although you've got individual dissenters, they're going to be left behind. Really interesting what happens sometimes is that that dissenter can be right. Galileo had the evidence. Wegener had the evidence on continental drift. That happens. Yeah, but that's not the usual way of things. I think Carl Sagan pointed that out, that 90% yes. of the time the conventional wisdom is correct. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So does it help then to tell an anti-vaxxer, for example, that you know, here's some evidence, here's some studies that show that there's no correlation between vaccines and autism. Surely they can't totally ignore you, even though they don't have the scientific attitude. There are a couple of different problems. One is fear, simply the idea that this isn't just some scientific hypothesis. This is something in which they have a personal stake. And if you look at the way that people form their beliefs, even about empirical topics, sometimes it has a lot to do with identity and with trust. And if you're living in a community with other people who are anti-vaxxers, maybe you trust them. And especially if you think that the scientists are lying, if there's some sort of a conspiracy about it, that can really manufacture doubt and make people confused. The evidence has shown that people will change their minds if you present it in the right way. 
if you don't yell at them, if you don't make them feel stupid, if you engage to build trust, you can change people's minds based on evidence. And they're doing this right now in Vancouver, Washington, where there's been a tremendous measles outbreak. And they've sent public health officials out to have workshops to talk with people, sometimes one-on-one. And they're changing minds. I read an account in the Washington Post where a woman who was an anti-vaxxer decided to vaccinate her children. And she said that the reason was because she sat down with a scientist who talked with her for two hours and answered all of her questions. She wanted to be heard. The evidence was ultimately compelling, but it had to be presented to her in the right way. We've been talking here about what seems to be an American problem, maybe uh, at least more so. And indeed, when I lived in Europe, I had the feeling, uh, I don't know, it wasn't backed up by numbers, I have to say, but that there was less misunderstanding about science, whether that was, you know, the misunderstanding was deliberate or circumstantial, they just weren't trained in science. But is that true? Is this a more severe problem here in the United States? It depends on the area. It depends on the area of science denial. Um, if you look at uh, evolution by natural selection, Turkey is the number one country for uh, denial of evolution by natural selection. They actually ban it from being taught in their public schools. Then flip over to someplace like uh, China. China is very enlightened about climate change. They don't have the same climate change denial that we do here, even though they're the number one contributor to that. I don't think that science denial is a uniquely American phenomenon. But I do think that there's a sense in which it's been growing here faster than it's been growing in other countries. I mean, the human brain is wired up with these cognitive biases, and then they're exacerbated by finding your silos, your community on the Internet who back you up. And it is worldwide. Some of the most egregious examples that you see are here in the U.S. I have to say, though, I just got back from a trip to Italy earlier in the year where they've just elected in a government that's anti-vax. So it is a problem in different hotspots around the world. What's the role of the media in all this, Lee? Often you hear them giving both sides of an argument, uh, seemingly in the interests of fairness. Uh, but there's something wrong about that. I mean, should we give both sides of the argument for, for example, a spherical Earth? <laughs> yeah, it's the problem of false equivalence, and this we find in post-truth as well. Journalists sometimes feel that it's their job to be objective, and the way that you're objective is to get both sides of the story. But as I say, the halfway point between the truth and a lie is still a lie. Journalists are not supposed to be indifferent between the truth and a lie, and so by having these um, terrible split-screen debates on TV where they'll have James Hansen on one side and they'll have somebody with a website on the other side uh, and they're talking about climate change, they give them equal time and then the host refuses to talk about consensus. That's itself a kind of bias. That leads the, the viewer, the reader, the listener to think that there's controversy where there really isn't one. So the way that the media covers science is sort of appalling. Uh, at a certain point, the media do decide when people are getting hurt that it's not fun anymore and maybe they're creating controversy and uh, hurting people. So if you look at, for instance, recently since the great measles outbreak uh, in the U.S., they're not doing so many of those split-screen debates, maybe because public opinion has shifted. But in general, I think that science coverage in the media leaves a lot to be desired because they're not uh, really talking about scientific consensus, they're looking for a story, and a story is usually based on controversy. Do you think that this problem, this problem being the lack of uh, understanding and appreciation of what science is, is worse today than it was, say, a few decades ago? I do. And I think the thing is the cognitive bias has been there. But what's new is social media. What's new is the Internet. When I was a boy, I remember just being appalled. My mom told me that, well, the other people would believe that we didn't go to the moon. I think, well, how is this possible? Because we'd never met one. I mean, there was a fringe community, but where did they find one another? Where, how did this get reinforced? It really wasn't. But now, no matter what you believe, you can find your community on the Internet. Um, the Flat Earth Movement is growing, and it's because there are all these YouTube videos, and people get, uh, as they put it, sucked down the rabbit hole. They watch the YouTube videos. They become radicalized. Now they have conventions once a year for Flat Earthers. So this is growing, and I think it creates a climate of denial that then may make it seem as if, well, climate denial or vaccine denial, that's more mainstream because look at how far the fringe has gotten now. At the most recent meeting of the Flat Earth International Conference in Denver in November 2018, there were 600 people there. 
who were attending seminars on quote-unquote evidence for flat earth. Studies have shown that people uh, let their peers influence their own beliefs. They want to fit in. And if your crowd doesn't think evolution is real, or then maybe you don't either. So it doesn't sound as if simply being confrontational about these things is going to help because you're not just arguing against an individual. You're arguing against their entire peer group. Yeah, it, it can be very hard. I mean, the, the hardcore science deniers, uh, somebody whose identity is completely wrapped up with whatever their belief is, maybe you're not going to be able to convince them. I'm a great advocate in the idea that scientists and others who care about science need to engage, though, uh, and we need to engage for the sake of the audience, because if we don't engage, then that just means that the voices of disinformation and, and denial are louder and they're reaching further. The way that you really reach people is one-on-one, -on -one, uh, is to, to build trusting relationships by getting to know them. And the only way you do that is through engagement. So as much as I have respect for scientists and their time and, you know, who wants to, to be out there uh, doing this, I do think that it's important for them to push back. There's a line that you don't want to cross. Uh, I, I don't think that scientists need to get baited into having public debates where they can be giving oxygen to, you know, some fringe views. But I think that scientists can help the media, for instance, because when the media is covering something as a controversy, uh, there needs to be a scientific voice on the other side. You do see this. You see Neil deGrasse Tyson and, and others uh, on various topics as the public face of science pushing back, and I think we need to see more of that. Well, finally, Lee, is there uh, any cause for optimism here. I mean, I, you know, I, I grew up in the generation that went to school after the Second World War, and science, of course, had played a big role in that war and in winning the war. And, and today we have this sort of disillusionment uh, with scientists, uh, you know, people fighting back and so forth. How do you see the future? What will things be like 30 years from now? I don't know. I can't predict, but I have to say that there are certain things that give me pause. Uh, the, the fake news, uh, the rise of deep fake uh, video and audio, I think is politically a, a, a sort of a disaster. But I do have some grounds for optimism, which is that eventually people do change their mind based on evidence if they're exposed to it in the right way over long periods of time. And I'm now sort of a connoisseur of the literature of people who do change their mind. I read the cases of the anti-vaxxers or the climate change deniers and how they change their mind. And to a person, it's always because they had some sort of personal experience, either with something that affected them, maybe their child got sick, maybe all of a sudden their business is flooded, so that's going to make a difference for vaccines or for climate change. But more often, it's that they meet people whom they trust. There was a fellow who went to work for NASA. He was a, a Trump appointee, and he was a climate change denier. Four days later, he changed his mind, and it was because he was exposed to people who presumably he trusted, who gave him the evidence in a common, rational way. I think that this can actually work. It takes time. It takes commitment. It takes motivation. But What's our choice? If we're not willing to fight back for science, then I'm not optimistic. Then I shudder for the future. Lee McIntyre, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Lee McIntyre is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University, and he teaches ethics at the Harvard Extension School. His book is The Scientific Attitude, Defending Science from Denial, Fraud, and Pseudoscience. And you can find links to him on our website at bigpicturescience.org. So this is one of those cases where you don't win the argument with facts alone. Your approach is just as important. It's your approach, after all, that opens the doors of the mind so that the facts can actually get in. And be aware, this is not just a local problem. It's a worldwide one. <clears throat> All right, well, we've been talking about believers amongst the public and how one might change their minds. But what about the practitioners of pseudoscience? There are naturopaths out there who think that they can heal serious diseases like autoimmune illnesses, heart disease, and cancer. What prompted one woman, a naturopath, to leave the field? It's Skeptic Check, betting on pseudoscience on Big Picture Science.
Naturopathy, like homeopathy, is a subdiscipline of so-called alternative medicine. It claims the remedy for what ails you is a healthy lifestyle. You know, just eat those rutabagas and your chronic tinnitus will go away. Well, according to the National Institutes of Health, 2% of Americans, that's about 6 million people, treat their infirmities with homeopathy. And according to a naturopathic newsletter, eight times as many trust the healing properties of so-called natural products, the basis of naturopathy. But I'm just telling you what I know about naturopathy, so let's get a second opinion. Well, I used to be a naturopathic doctor, and so that meant that I would see patients and provide them with information to convince them that I was trained in both real medicine and also all of these ancient and traditional medical concepts, you know, these things that were uh, used a long time ago, like special herbs and homeopathy, for example. Britt Hermes studied naturopathy, entered the field, set up a shop, and began to see patients. But then something frightened her and she quit. Do no harm is part of the Hippocratic Oath for doctors, but Britt Hermes eventually realized that it did not apply to naturopathy. She now campaigns against those who practice it, earning her the media's nickname, Naturopath Whistleblower. Britt, how did you become a naturopath practitioner? I mean, does one get a degree in it? So it depends on the state that you live, what the requirements are to call yourself a naturopathic doctor. But in general, you're required to graduate from a four-year accredited naturopathic school and then take a licensing exam. Now, you're going to find naturopaths on their website providing information that is actually not so accurate. So oftentimes, naturopaths will call this licensing exam a board certification exam. So there is no such thing as board certifications in naturopathy. And you're going to find naturopaths referring to their school system as a naturopathic medical school, which is not a thing either. There's naturopathic school and then there's medical school. And these are two separate entities accredited by separate boards and and very different things. But you say you spent four years at a college studying this. What attracted you to naturopathy? Basically, I had a very typical experience, which is I had a bad experience with a medical doctor. So the quick story is that when I was a teenager, I was diagnosed with psoriasis. I felt very upset and self-conscious about this. So I went to a dermatologist for help who, in my memory, sort of brushed me off and told me to get over it and I would have to take steroids for the rest of my life. And when I asked this dermatologist if there was anything that I could do to help mitigate the symptoms or change the course of disease, he said no and that I needed to suck it up and get over it. And being the stubborn teenager that I was, I decided that I was going to prove him wrong and started exploring these natural medicine ideas and, and treatments from an early age, which eventually led to me pursuing it as a career path. Many naturopaths either set up their own clinic, and this clinic can be, you know, just a room out of your home, but many times naturopaths are trying to provide the impression that they are just like medical doctors, so they're setting up their practices to look like what you would think of a normal medical practice with like a waiting room and a receptionist desk and treatment rooms in the back and all that. Uh, that, that kind of thing. And, and would you have them? I mean, obviously, you don't examine them with the traditional tools of a medical doctor, right? I mean, you're not taking their blood pressure or stuff like that? Well, naturopaths are trained to do all of those things. So many naturopaths do. But whether or not, you know, this type of um, conventional medical information goes into the decision-making process for coming up with a diagnosis is really dependent upon the individual naturopath. And that's because naturopaths believe in information that is not part of the conventional medical system. So naturopaths use their own made-up special diagnoses, for example. They have their own ideas about physiology and how the body functions. And so you might have a naturopath who is listening to your heart and taking your blood pressure and taking note of this information, but he or she is also combining that with some esoteric information about how that patient feels when they're exposed to certain lights or certain times of day, for example, or grief that perhaps is in that person's life. So lots of like different emotional psychosomatic things that are sort of being interwoven into that medical visit. Well, perhaps you could describe an example of somebody who came in with some, some complaint or other and what you asked them and what they told you. Sure. So a frequent example of someone coming in to talk to me about 
let's say, high blood pressure. So we're talking about their heart. And so perhaps I'm listening to their heart. I'm taking their blood pressure. But now I'm also talking, getting a very extensive family history, not just health history, but just I want to know about how that person uh, was raised, the family environment that they were raised in, what their mom and dad were like. And I'm specifically looking for elements of heartache and grief for that patient because I want to know perhaps if this person went through a traumatic event that preceded or came right before the onset of this high blood pressure and this heart problem. And I'm taking, you know, careful information to kind of get this detailed, what a naturopath would call holistic picture of the patient so that at the end of the visit, when I'm making my treatment recommendations, I can then add in some herbs or perhaps some homeopathic pills that can address the energetic component of of heart disease. Did you uh, frequently encounter patients who had what you might call very serious conditions, you know, cancers? Oh, sure. So the clinic that I worked at in Arizona was owned and run by a naturopath who treated almost exclusively uh, patients with cancer. And so I saw a lot of these patients either alongside him or as sort of like in a nursing role to help out with the treatments that were provided. So I did a lot of alternative therapies for cancer patients. Did you uh, hear what happened to them? Yes. <laughs> yes, I did hear what happened to them. So many of these patients that came to see us in the naturopathic setting were very sick and were probably going to pass away anyway and did die while pursuing naturopathic therapy. And then this other set of cancer patients who weren't necessarily super sick with cancer yet, but were afraid of the cancer care, many times got more sick while pursuing cancer therapies. Well, you eventually left uh, naturopathy, and you write that you left the field with a bang. That sounds both dramatic and sudden. What happened? It was really dramatic. I found out that I was accidentally involved in what could potentially be a federal crime. I was helping my boss at the time administer a non-FDA approved cancer drug to patients. And the importation and the administration of a non-FDA approved drug for the treatment of cancer or any disease is potentially a crime. And, and when I found out that this was going on, I felt terrible about it. I felt like I had been accidentally involved in duping patients. And uh, it turns out that this drug was very dangerous and associated with all sorts of really scary side effects like liver failure. And I felt sick about it. And it essentially prompted me to take a step back from naturopathy and to assess what I was doing as a naturopath and to start to look at the profession critically. And with this new set of eyes, I realized that much of what I was doing, if not all of what I was doing as a naturopath, was not based on science. And most of the profession functions and profits off of selling uh, dangerous and many times unnecessary treatments to patients. You say it can be dangerous. Is the danger because of what you're actually asking them to, to do, to take, whatever, or is it simply because they don't go through the kind of regimens that, a, you know, the traditional, or should I say, the conventional medical establishment would have them do? There's all sorts of different types of danger that come into play. So there is exactly what you mentioned, where many times patients are pursuing naturopathic or alternative care, and so they are missing out on regular conventional care, which can be dangerous because you can miss a diagnosis or miss an important window for treatment. It's also dangerous because there's this misconception that naturopathy, because it's based on natural concepts, whatever that means, that they're not harmful, when in fact these natural therapies can be very harmful. They're not vetted by the FDA necessarily, so they're not necessarily shown to be safe or effective. And the patient can react very poorly to these types of naturopathic therapies. So a quick example, there was a young woman in San Diego who went to a naturopath uh, for the treatment of eczema, which is basically itchy skin. So this is generally considered to be a no big deal skin disease that can be treated with some topical treatments and sometimes some different dietary interventions from a dermatologist. But this naturopath recommended that the patient receive an injection of a prepared herb called turmeric. So it wasn't the herb itself, but rather it was an ingredient that was extracted from the herb. 
And unfortunately, this patient had a terrible reaction to the injection, basically resulting in her heart stopping, and she passed away. And so this is a patient who just went in to basically get some additional help for a bummer of a skin condition, but not a life-threatening disease. The naturopath recommended a ridiculous treatment, and the patient passed away as a result. So even if you're not going to a naturopath for something serious like diabetes or cancer, there's a real risk to it. Is there any evidence that supports naturopathy? I mean, you know, do any of the patients get better? So this is a tricky question, but an important question, because naturopathy really refers to a wide range of practices that are commonly characterized as complementary and alternative medicine. It's not any one thing that is easy to study. And people from within the naturopathic community are trying to study naturopathy, but they're not doing so using the rigorous clinical trial designs in order to assess the research questions. So From my perspective, the studies that are evaluating naturopathy have serious methodology problems, and therefore we can't really rely on the information from these studies. And I don't feel like naturopathy is effective or is safe because the parts of it that do work are medicine. They're not naturopathy. The thing that is true naturopathy, the stuff that is the core of naturopathy, is all of the stuff that is alternative to medicine. It's all of the stuff that is not scientifically based, and it's all of the stuff that is really based on these archaic and pseudoscientific and sort of pre-scientific ideas. Since you've left naturopathy, you've also been uh, working to understand why you were drawn to it in the first place. Have you learned anything beyond the fact that you had a condition that, you know, your doctor said, uh, deal with it, and you decided that wasn't a good answer? Well, I've come to realize that patients don't necessarily remember the specifics of their appointments with their doctors, but they do very much remember how that doctor, how that person made them feel. And medical doctors historically struggle with making patients feel heard, especially certain populations of patients. So women and people of color typically don't feel like they are being listened to in a doctor's office, whereas the naturopathic experience is really warm. And there's usually a lot of empathy expressed in that visit. And so patients walk out of their time spent with a naturopath feeling really good about that experience. And so that's one thing that I try to stress to the medical community is that the time that you're spending with that patient is really important in creating this nurturing and this supportive environment. And less important is what you tell that patient and more important is how you make that patient feel and helping them to feel empowered in their health and like they can take control of their health using the tools based on science and evidence that you are offering them. The importance of a good bedside manner. That's right. Finally, Britt, we've heard earlier in this show that often what leads someone to stop their anti-science views to, to give them up is a conversation with someone who has the facts but who can answer questions. Or I've also heard others who have abandoned that belief and were, you know, once like you. What was it in your case? Well, you know, I was really scared. So I think this fear really motivated me to start to look for answers and look for information that was critical of naturopathy. I always knew that there were critics of naturopaths out there. I mean, I knew science-based medicine existed. I knew that Quack Watch existed, but I chose to ignore this information because it wasn't in alignment with my belief system. And so once I no longer had that need, once I no longer felt like I wanted to be defined by naturopathy, then I was really truly able to take in information from the outside and really to start to evaluate naturopathy from a more objective perspective. Britt Marie Hermes, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Britt Marie Hermes is a former naturopath practitioner, and she is now working on her PhD in evolutionary genetics at the University of Kiel, Germany. So, 
what's the big picture here? We've heard that seemingly benign, even amusing pseudoscience practices, such as psychics, can have a dark side. And for some, such as naturopathy, that side can be very dark indeed. But we've also heard that combating these harmful beliefs won't be accomplished by simply lecturing the benighted. So if you want to change someone's mind, sit down with them, answer their questions, avoid being critical. And by the way, it wouldn't hurt to make sure more people understand that science isn't just about having a white lab coat and a microscope. Well, we don't need a crystal ball to tell us that we would be lost without help from senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and operations manager Barbara Vance. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including the contents of asteroids and comets. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and I do my best to avoid having any palms inspected. Also, a big thanks to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to an episode of our regular look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science called Skeptic Check, and this one, Betting on Pseudoscience. If you want to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you can find lots of episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org, and you will find links there to the guests you've heard as well. You may be listening to our radio show, but did you know you can also listen to Bye Pi Sci by subscribing to the Big Picture Science podcast? You'll find links on our website to the platforms that carry us. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.